Welcome to the ASHP Advantage Podcast, engaging the experts on ASHP Official, featuring conversations with top-level practitioners about the latest issues in pharmacy and healthcare. Thanks for joining us in this ASHP Advantage Podcast, Engaging the Experts, where we sit down with content matter experts and discuss what is currently top of the mind in the work of pharmacy. My name is Mary Anthony Thermos, and I am joined by Deb Pasco, who is a Data Solutions Architect and Program Director at Paraxel International, and Rita Ju, who is a President at the Institute for Safe Medication Practice. Today, we'll be talking about their work and perspectives on the ASHP Standardized for Safety Initiative. And I will also add that I am currently the Director of Medication Safety and Quality at ASHP. This episode is sponsored by Baxter Healthcare Corporation. This podcast is for informational purposes and not approved for continuing education credit. Thanks for joining us today and let's get started. So first question, let's start by telling the audience why this effort is so important and how it assists in keeping patients safe. Deb, I'm going to start with you. Thanks, Marianne. I just want to say anything that I talk about today will be from my own clinical perspective and not necessarily from my company of ParXL currently. So I want to start by just sharing a patient story with you because I think that's how we always connect with our patients and know the importance of our work. So I was, you know, employed at a large academic center for a large portion of my clinical career and worked in a pediatric care unit. We had a patient there that was a five-year-old little boy who received baclofen compounded suspension for asbestosity. And so he came into the hospital once and the medication that he received on the outside from his pharmacy was compounded as one milligram per milliliter. But when he came into our pharmacy, we compounded a 10 milligram per milliliter. However, through improper med rec, the resident just wrote the dose in MLs. And it was not clarified of how many milligrams that was. And the first time it was actually caught after he received only one dose. But unfortunately, that little boy came in a second time to our institution a couple months later, and the same exact incident happened again. And he actually received four doses before it was noticed what had happened. And it was only noticed after that little boy actually came to the intensive care unit because of the overdose of baclofen. So it really started us on this journey of understanding concentrations between inpatient pharmacies, outpatient pharmacies, especially in the world of compounding. It's very complex. And then, you know, we're going to address today both compounded oral medications as well as intravenous medications. So that's my patient story and why this is so, it's relevant for me. It's been a passion of mine. Many of you have known me over the the years and why it's so important. That is really an impactful and, and unfortunately sad story that we certainly don't want to happen. Rita, how about your opinion on this? Absolutely. Well, as a lot of you guys know, my background is in neonatal and pediatric pharmacy as well. And so I can give you both my personal clinical experience and the stance, um, the information from my SMP. So from my clinical experience, patients have definitely 
I have had experience of patients receiving one concentration of medications in the hospital and a different concentration at home, but the same ML dose administered, just like what DAP has just mentioned, that interchange of concentrations, but the dose is expressed in ML is really the biggest concern with medication safety when we don't have a standardized concentration. Everybody at the top of their mind was thinking of their own concentration that they're used to in the institution and don't think about what might be happening on the outside. We have mothers reporting a dose in MLs and a physician assuming there there was only one concentration and hence just wrote for a dose that is equivalent to that one ML based on the institutional concentration and and have that same similar events happening both in overdoses and underdose you can imagine in this case. As far as concentrations of IV medications is really the times where we have patients transferring from one institution to another and the continuous infusion drips just kept at the same rate, but a different concentration has totally happened. And I think in we, we don't see that as much these days in hospitals where most of the time the concentrations in the different patient care areas are standardized, but we often have patients in the OR who might be receiving it one concentration, and then transferring to the critical care unit that receiving a totally different concentration of a critical infusion that have caused over and under doses. Now, from ISMP's perspective, I can tell you that we have published on errors from oral solutions that were extemporaneously compounded because of non-standard concentrations. A big example was flaconide. Actually, we did a whole article on flaconide looking at all of the different errors that has happened related to that. And one of them was basically a suspension that was uh, flaconized suspension, the concentrations were literally switched three different times. And the third time around, a calculation error of that flaconide needed to prepare the bottle occurred and it led to a tenfold overdose. We didn't know, we didn't hear about what happened to the patient, but we can all imagine flaconide 10 times overdose could be deadly. We've also had case reports of overdose of flaconide that led to wide complex tachycardia and cardiac arrest in an 18-day-old infant. Literally, it was a 0.8 ml dose of 8 milligrams of the 10 milligrams per ml suspension that was given to the patient instead of the correct dose of 4 milligrams of a 5 milligram per ml flaconide in the same volume of 0.8 ml. So these interchanges of concentration using the same volume has been really deadly. And then one last case that I wanted to mention is a nine-month-old infant whose parents were told to increase the dose of flaconide to four mLs, assuming that the concentration was five milligrams per mL, as in the original prescription is what the instruction was. So the physicians say increase the dose, the patient is still having symptoms, the original prescription was for a concentration of five milligrams per mL, so increase it to four mLs. The parents refilled the prescription at another pharmacy that was making a 20 milligrams per mL concentration, and the patient ended up receiving a fourfold overdose of 80 milligrams instead of 20 milligrams of the dosing. So these are just underscoring the importance of why we really wanted to standardize concentrations. If we don't speak from the same language of the same concentration, these are the kinds of errors that could be happening. 
Thank you both for just doing a tremendous job of showing how our system, our health system, can hurt patients more than sometimes in our attempts to try to make them better. And those are the things that we, we certainly have to fix. So based on that, could you give us some history around this effort and when did the concept of standardizing concentrations actually begin? I guess I'll start with this to give you, I'm really dating myself now when I'm talking about the rule of six. I'm thinking that some listeners are going like, the rule of what? (laughs) This is actually a rule that was used in neonatal intensive care units and pediatric intensive care units, where if you don't know about this, I actually have to refresh my memory of how this was calculated. It was an ingenious invention of the rule, but then it was really causing a lot of concerns with medication errors. So what you do is you multiply the infant's or the child's weight in kilograms by six, and then add this amount of the drug to in milligrams or micrograms, whatever it might be, to a 100 ml solution. And then the infusion volume in ml per hour will equal to your micrograms per kilo per minute dose orders. So imagine if you have something that is five micrograms per kilo per minute, then you infuse five mil per hour to the patient using this rule of six calculation. Can you imagine the nightmare of medication errors that this could result in? The reason for this rule that came up is because back in the days, it was very common for nurses to prepare a lot of these critical infusions. So someone dreamt up this really innovative way to, quote, quote, figure out the concentration. And you can imagine doing this manual calculation with the concentration based on the weight of the patient. You first have to make sure that everyone who's using this method is competent in the calculation. You can imagine the rush of a patient crashing on you, trying to come up with an epinephrine drip and making a tenfold easily, a tenfold calculation error, right? When you rush to make this. And then on top of that, your patient's weight changes. So then this concentration changes with the patient weight and every patient will have a different concentration of the medication. So in these days and age where we really have to be precise on the beyond use dating, just imagine the nightmare of trying to figure out if if that really, you really have the stability information to even come up with a BUD, right? So ISMP actually first wrote about this issue. I I remember distinctly practicing as a clinician and saying, thank you, someone is advocating for eliminating this rule of six and calling for a standardized concentration. So back in 1999 is when ISMP first wrote about this issue and advocating for eliminating the rule of six and calling for standardized concentrations. And we were happy when the Joint Commission came on board and in 2003 came out with the National Patient Safety Goals that call for standardized concentrations for IV infusions. And I remember back in those days when people were like, especially the nurses and the physicians were saying like, this is ridiculous. Why are we eliminating the rule of six? It took a little while to try to get rid of that rule of six, but we have made such a significant advances in improving patient safety by doing that. And I think the other advantage of having standards is then we can really ask pharmaceutical companies to come up with a commercially available product that can actually be even safer than us trying to extemporaneously prepare these, these solutions. 
know that's that's a wonderful history uh, for all of us. Uh, and Deb, what's your perspective on that question? So thanks, Marianne. And you know, Rita, we are dating ourselves here. Of you know, I have to laugh at that. I mean, just think about this. I mean, when Rita said, you know, back in 1999. I mean, we have literally been at this for over 20 years. And we all know that the boat moves slow in healthcare, but you know, 20 years, like now is the time if there ever was a time. So I remember back when we started to move away from kind of our old pumps that were not quote unquote smart. And we started using smart infusion devices. And we learned that, hey, we can actually pre-program concentrations in for the nurses or the anesthesiologist to where they didn't have to, you know, use the rule of six. And I'm the same way, Rita. Like, I remember our neonatologist, I was in a room with them where they were literally pounding their fists on the table. They were so upset with us that we wanted to get rid of the rule of six. But then when we started thinking about standardized concentrations and we started making libraries and the infusion devices, then it was just all of a sudden the tie turned and they wanted all these concentrations. And then we had to fight against well, now we have standardized concentrations, but you want six standardized concentrations. That's not exactly standardized. So well, you'll hear us talk about this, you know, the concept of really standardizing and what does that mean today? Um, because I think it's really important. And, you know, the San Diego Collaborative was really the first kind of regional effort back in 2006 that started embarking upon this effort. And then ASHP held one of the first summits inviting ISMP and you know others to the table in 2008 to start this conversation. So that's really where all this kind of stemmed from and you know the journey that we're still on today. Well, thank you, Deb. You gave us a little bit of background of my next question, which is where are these proposed concentrations? How did they originate? But Rita, you have a little bit more background or additional background, not more, but additional background on where these might, where a little bit more history about where these proposed standardization is coming from. Yeah, definitely. Um, well, everything started from the 2006 San Diego collaborative like Deb has talked about. But at the same time, actually, just a few years after that, ISMP was also working with the Vermont Oxford Network, which is also known as VONS. Basically, it was a it is a network of healthcare professionals that was mainly focusing on the quality and safety of medical care of newborn infants. So we're collaborating with them to embark in literally a two-year journey of establishing standardized concentrations. So now that institutions are talking about standardized concentrations for infusions in their own institution, the effort is really to try to make sure that throughout the healthcare community, we can prevent errors from happening when we're transferring one patient from one institution to another. So that journey started in 2009. And in January of 2011 is when we first published the ISMP Vermont Oxford Network standardized neonatal concentration for IV infusions. And then, of course, then the whole ASHP efforts came into play, which really even further solidifying some efforts in having a, a cross-the-board standardization that I'm sure Deb can talk more about that since she was so immersed in that. Absolutely, exactly. So that leads to my next question. We now have three standardized final concentrations on the website, and there are additional three that are in various stages. One's almost done. 
But Deb, you know, maybe you can help our audience understand what was the approach used to decide to create these? How did we come up with these standard? How is that done? Standard concentrations that we have now and are preparing. Yeah, so, you know, when we started this effort of ASHP, you know, we submitted for a grant through the FDA through their safe use initiative. And we were, you know, lucky to be awarded that grant in 2015. And we started on this journey and we wanted to make this a really interprofessional effort that, you know, we wanted pharmacists, physicians, nurses at the table. We wanted them to represent certain, you know, disciplines and, and associations and be very well-rounded. So, you know, this certainly was not the Deb Pasco show by any means, and it's really taken a, a village and still is to this day. So we didn't want to reinvent the wheel, right? Like there were already many things reported in the literature. ISMP had come out with their list. We had San Diego. And then the people that we invited to make up these expert panels that we had of our interprofessional committees, we asked all of them to come on site to ASHP initially to kind of kick things off. And then we asked all of them, like, when you come to the meeting, this is a working meeting, bring your list of your institutions, concentrations, you know, and your dosing ranges of what you use. And so we went through that. And then our committees, we set up guiding principles. So we wanted to go about this in a very systematic and scientific way. You know, we are pharmacists at heart. Uh, many of us are, we're pediatric pharmacists as well. And we get down to the very, you know, minutia of like 0. 0.00 something. So, you know, we wanted to start at a good starting place of things that already had been out there, reported in the literature, and wherever it made sense for us to use those, we certainly did. And then once we kind of came up with a proposed concentration or concentrations, so, you know, I will say one of our guiding principles, literally the first one was wherever possible, only use one concentration. However, especially in pediatric population, that's not always possible. You know, we had to span the globe literally from our weight range that we used was 0.4 kilos or 400 grams of a baby that literally could fit in the palm of your hand all the way to an adult patient or a patient that's going to be 100 kilos or more. So, you know, we really had to, to look at that from all different kinds. And so then using those guiding principles, we came to a draft list once we thought we, you know, had really went through the literature, we've used multiple lists, and we came up with what we thought was a, a good proposed concentration or concentrations, then we posted those to connect on ASHP. And we made this open for everyone. So normally on the connect site, it's usually for ASHP members, but the ASHP leadership felt like it was very important to make sure that this was open to everyone and that physicians, nurses, pharmacists from around the country could comment and leave their comments about like, you know, hey, this is what we use at our institution. Did you think about this? And if you didn't use that concentration, why not? So we had to kind of, you know, come to terms with these things. And we also used like the 80-20 rule. We, you know, went for 80% of the time, this concentration was going to work. However, there would be about 20% of the time where you may still have to use a non-standard concentration, but 
if you do that at your institution, you should have a process. It should have to go through some type of vetting or approval process of why you're using that non-standard versus the standard. And then once a list was finalized, we went through a lot of QA. ISMP helped us make sure that we had like the spaces where they needed to be. We used, you know, mics or milligrams where it was supposed to be. Um, We used tall man lettering. And then the final list would get approved and posted to the websites, as you described, Marianne, that there's three existing and and more that you're working on right now. Rita, do you have anything to add to that process? No. And I I can add that um, we have the, on the website right now is adult continuous infusion, pediatric continuous infusion, and oral compounded liquids. The PCA epidural is very shortly, should be on. We just have a few debates. And I can tell you that this um, process does create rich discussion among the expert panel that's on the team. So sometimes it's not an easy answer. And then we also have begun uh, working on intermittent infusion and IV pushes, which is a long list. And then yet to be completed is the final one will be rounding of oral liquids. So that's the plan. You know, these do take some time because we seriously take all comments and all discussion points and all opinions to come up to the most optimal list for a national perspective. Okay, let's go on to this, the next question. So, Deb, how is the communication with FDA in, involved in this? What is, what is their role and what are their interests in supporting why they supported this initiative? Yeah, so I have to say the FDA has been highly involved from this. From the time that we were awarded the grant, they had also previously worked with the University of Michigan on the Michigan compounding as well. And they had a team of pharmacists and uh, physicians that we met with on a regular cadence. So we were responsible for sending updates in on a monthly basis. And then we had on-site meetings with them when, you know, this was obviously pre-COVID, but they were very engaged. They wanted to hear about, you know, what were the challenges that we were facing? What were the conversations that we were having between the anesthesiologist and the critical care physicians or the nurses? And then they also wanted to know what part they could play in inviting the life science companies to the table, because it has always been our hope that the life science companies will come along and commercially prepare some or a large portion of these medications if we were able to standardize those concentrations. So, you know, we also had to occasionally talk to them about what happens if we're recommending a concentration that is considered to be like off-label? So a great example of this was cystatricuria. In the package insert for cystatricuria, it stated a concentration for the continuous infusion of 0.4 milligrams per milliliter. Well, in the, you know, in the OR, the anesthesiologists typically don't give continuous infusions of paralytics. They give IV push every, you know, so often based upon the drug's half-life. And they were just drawing two milligram per mil cystatricurium from the vial and administrate it. So we had to go on this journey of, okay, could we use two milligrams per milliliter? Does it need to be through a, you know, a central line? Does it need to have some certain dilution? You know, there were lots of considerations there. And ultimately, we tried to make the concentrations as OR and the intensive care unit and a general care unit, if applicable, um, as much as we could. But, you know, the FDA, we had to make sure that that was 
you know, if we're recommending something that's off-label, is that okay with them? You know, uh, they're the ones that are approving these things that are going to the package insert. So we just had to make sure that it was a really justified reason. There was literature support for it, why it was needed. And once we could kind of check all the boxes with the FDA and explain it to them, they have been extremely supportive of what we come up with. So kudos to them. And they continue to advocate for this to this day. And we will be forever grateful of the role that they've played in this. Thank you, Deb. Uh, Brita, do you have any additional comments on our perspective on the, on this? Sure. I think the the other big thing that to consider is really that whole transition from pediatric to adult concentrations involving the concentration units like micrograms or milligrams and transitioning of those dosing, right? So a great example is midazolam. You know, midazolam could in pediatric patients could be could be ordered in doses of milligrams per kilo per hour or micrograms per kilo per minute. And in adults, it's in milligrams per hour. So standardizing the dosing. So see, this whole concentration thing also needs to take into account the dosing units, right? As you're converting the dosing units to these concentrations. So if folks will order in milligrams per kilo per hour, then the concentration can all be standardized in milligrams per mil, which will be the safest approach. So really trying to make sure that because you do have physicians, especially in the children's hospital, where you we're taking care of, like Deb was talking about the 400 grams or 0.4 kilo baby infant to the large adolescent that could be 100 kilos, you have physicians who might be taking care of the whole spectrum of these patients. So standardizing these concentration as the same unit of measure will be much more safer than trying to work with different units. And then just think about that whole implication of the smart pump into this equation, then you really do want to make sure that as you can come to one standard way, if all possible. That's a great point. Thank you, Rita. And I'd like to add that the FDA grant now has has expired. It's done. We're completed with it. But I'd like to add that ASHP is committed to maintaining these standards and reviewing them on a regular basis, adding or removing medications as appropriate when things come off the market or, or there's an important drug that's on the market that this needs to be done. And also to, you know, committed to promoting this and making it living standards because all this work, we certainly don't want it to become archaic or outdated. So um, that's an important point I think I'd like to just add to this conversation. What has been or how has these standards been communicated, not only just to pharmacists and pharmacist members of ASHP, but to critical care workers like nurses, anesthesiologists, and and um, so that we really do get the buy-in and the national standardization of this. Yeah, so I'll start with that, and then you know, feel free to to fill in. You know, when we first started this, that again, those interprofessional expert panels that we had. We reached out to multiple societies, critical care medicine, critical care nursing, pediatric societies, the anesthesiology society, and we asked for representatives that they could recommend to be not only the discipline that we needed, but a member of that society or that association to make sure that we had kind of this seamless communication process of, you know, when we were recommending something that those concentrations needed to be vetted by others that were using this. This isn't just pharmacists doing this 
work, you know, that we had other workers highly impacted from the ED to survival flight to the OR. We had to think about all of them. And we had representatives from each of those areas, if not, you know, one person, sometimes we had multiple people from different care areas. And, you know, I think the Anesthesiology Society, ASA, was probably one of the closest ones that we worked with because we did use so many of those infusions in the OR or IV push, and then they went to the, the intensive care unit that, and the anesthesiologist, you know, they don't have a pharmacist, you know, necessarily in the operating room. You know, some larger institutions do have an OR pharmacy, but not everyone has that luxury. So we had to make sure that, you know, these physicians were compounding themselves and doing it on the fly. Was it something that worked for them? Um, what did they used to see, you know, in their pumps? Um, so we wanted to make sure we had a good communication plan across the spectrum. In addition to, we also reached out to multiple pharmacy groups like, you know, Visient, or we had PPAG in addition to, you know, what we had with ISMP. So that was kind of a starting point for us. And as you mentioned, Marianne, I can't thank ASHP enough for taking this on as an initiative. I joked with Doug Shuckelhoff that I think I probably made Doug have a few more gray hairs uh, going through this process, but they really have stepped up and, and knowing this is going to continue, that this communication, you know, like you said, it's just not a one and done. It's something that needs to continuously be reinforced. So if you want to add anything else to that, Marianne. Yeah, sure. I think probably the only the thing that I can add, which is very encouraging, is we're setting up this advisory committees, one for adults and one for pediatrics, that will review and respond to feedback. Because I often get feedback through Connect or direct to ASB. How did we come up with this concentration? What about this? And so the positive thing is that all these organizations have readily stepped up. And so the anesthesiologists, the critical care nurses, so I, you know, so to participate in this and are very interested in it, and we're going to meet on a quarterly basis to review, update, and keep these as living, strong documents that do indeed meet the national standard. So, um, so that that's something that I think uh, it is very encouraging as we move forward. This it, this multidisciplinary collaboration has has been wonderful. Rita, any additional thoughts there? Yeah, I can definitely tell you that when wherever we can, we promote the use of safety standardized concentrations in our communications, in our guidelines, in our newsletters uh, from the ISMP perspective. And the one thing I do want to mention that is still confusing to folks is people have been also sending us questions about the ISMP Vaughn neonatal concentration list versus the standardized for safety list. And uh, we have sunsetted. We have officially for a while sunsetted that neonatal concentration list and adopted basically and supported the standardized for safety concentrations so people won't be confused. It was literally a Herculean task to try to get it off of the internet, though, because apparently, depending on what search engine you use, you can still find it, even though we have gotten rid of it from our website. So I'm hoping that this might be some good information to get people to know that we no longer support the ISMP and Vaughn neonatal concentration because it hasn't been updated. And we certainly want everyone to go to standardized for safety concentration. And I'd like to add that ISMP is 
specifically uh, requested to review these standards before they are, are finalized. So we always have your input in, into this. We talked a little bit about how, you know, the process of how these standards are created. And I talked a little bit on, on a plan for how we're going to make sure they're current and updated. Is there anything else you'd like to add to that, Deb or Rita? Yeah, I think the last part of this is it's been a question that people, you know, have asked all through the process is how do we know for sure that this is the right concentration or this is, and when I say right, I'm going to kind of strike through that term because I don't think there actually is a right. There's what's optimal for a patient. And so we try to really make the concentrations optimal based upon patients' fluid requirements of what they have, if you're talking the intravenous form of these. But, you know, there was some work that was done by UNC um, that was started by Stephen Eckel. There's also been work done by Mass General Nat Sims, who's an anesthesiologist, he had done a simulation in his lab of, you know, continuous infusions. And when you change concentrations, how do they mix together? What's the volume of the line, et cetera, that I know ASHP has been involved in that and has done some education on that. And then, you know, there was a, a physician that came from Phoenix Children's. I'm not for sure if he's still there, but he, you know, had a fluid calculator. And we used that all through our process to basically put in a concentration once we thought about that, especially for the new neonates and see how many mLs per hour that was. And is that appropriate for that size patient? So I think it's really though the next phase of this or the next step is really could try to take a scientific approach to developing some type of research to determine if the concentrations that we proposed are really working out in patient care. And they were able to meet the patient's fluid requirements as well as, you know, us being pharmacists, we do think about the operational side of things. So for instance, did you use a whole vial of that norepinephrine? Did you use a partial vial? God forbid if we're throwing away something because, you know, in the land of shortages that we've all lived in for many years now, you know, the thought of throwing a, a partial vial away, like nearly just stabs us through the heart as pharmacists. So it's all of those considerations. But again, it's that next step for really determining, are these the right concentrations that we proposed? And can we take a, a scientific rigor to determine that? Yeah, I have to, it's so wonderful to hear you say that because I totally agree that we have to now start looking at, at that. And ASHB is just beginning this long journey of, of doing that. Having been a researcher in a past life, I know all the work that goes into it, but we've done a couple of things. One, we have a checklist on the ASHP website where organizations can go and look at how well they align with the standardized for safety standards, and they can do that over time. So we can look at this data that we're not collecting any identifiable data, but we can look to see where are the standards, why are they not being adapted that can identify for us where we may need to focus. And we've also have a, a working relationship that an official working relationship with Bainbridge Health, which collects infusion data from smart pumps. So we can kind of look at what they're doing as well as look at are people wasting? Because that's something that they do. And so we can use that data to help inform us as well as exactly what you said. Is this really right? Are we seeing problems or are patients doing well with the concentrations we're proposing? Rita, you want to add, add anything to that? No, I think you guys have covered it all. All right. 
So our final question, and I know we've been talking a long time for a podcast, but what is the communication plan and education for the healthcare professionals, pharmacists, nurses? How do we make sure that this does indeed, we reach our vision of becoming a national standard? Right. Well, let me take this and say, emphasize on the fact that the this whole interprofessional, just education, just like DAP has alluded to with the initial rollout is important. And I think a continuous effort is very important to communicate to physicians, nurses, besides pharmacists, to make sure that every profession will embrace this. As I think it's also very important to communicate the fact that the advisory committee is comprised of the multidisciplinary members, you know, including all of the people that we've talked about, anesthesiologists, pediatric intensivists, neonatologists, really to just get the buy-in from these folks. But one thing I do want to mention is let's not forget the compounding pharmacies, because as you've heard at the beginning of the podcast, a lot of the errors that we've heard about also involve with non-steroid compounding when the patient get discharged and get transferred to a community pharmacies where they're making different concentrations. So I think more efforts needs to be put through to educate the community pharmacies, the chain pharmacies, whoever is doing compounding to make sure that they're utilizing the standardized concentration so we can eliminate some of these unnecessary errors that are happening as we're having the transition of care between the hospitals and home. Such an important point, this coordination of care between our own colleagues is so, so important. So thank you both for giving us such a wonderful history lesson of where we are with this in the use of the world of sixes and the smart pumps and how we've come to where we are. And I I really take to heart that need that we need to spread this and get this information out. And we are working on this. This is one of several podcasts around standardized for safety. So be aware of those coming in the future. There will be a pre-symposium on this at, uh, at the mid-year as well as a session. So please do contact me at ASHP if you'd like more or different kinds of education. And with that, I'm going to ask everyone for if they have one last comment to go ahead and provide that. Yeah, thanks everyone for sticking with us. We know this has been a little long, but the last comment I want to really just want to say is thank you to ASHP. Thank you to their leadership team. This has been a long journey. It's been, it's ups and downs, but Paul and others have really been highly supportive of this effort from the get-go, and we would have not have gotten this far without their support. So I really want to thank them for all that they have done and continue to do, and to help pharmacists out there everywhere that touch these medications in some way, and how we can make it ultimately safer for our patients. Now, I only wanted to say thank you for having me on this podcast. I really enjoyed this conversation. All right. So thank you. That's all the time we have. Thank you again, Drs. Pasco and Ju, for joining us today. And thank you for tuning into this session, all of you, and engaging the experts. And we hope you enjoyed today's conversation. Goodbye. Thanks for joining us for the ASHP Advantage podcast, Engaging the Experts. Be sure to visit ashp.org forward slash podcast to discover more great episodes, access show notes, and download the episode transcript. If you loved the episode and want to hear more, 
be sure to subscribe, rate, or leave a review. Join us next time for more expert perspectives on ASHP Official.